Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called Unpacking Incarceration and Abuse with Jessica Hutchison. Jessica is a PhD candidate at Wilfrid Laurier University, and her research focuses on the use of strip searching in women's prisons. Unfortunately, we know that the vast majority of women in prison are survivors of sexual abuse and interpersonal violence. In this episode, Jessica discusses some of the reasons why survivors of domestic violence go to prison and how their prison experience can force them to relive their trauma, for example, through the use of strip searching. This was a difficult but fascinating conversation, and it gave me a lot to think about. I think you will really enjoy it, and you'll learn a lot from it. Before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself, and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank our episode sponsor, 570 News, local reporters and local journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News, Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. Hi, Jessica. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So excited to be here with you. I'm really excited to learn from you today and to to talk about this. So I'm just really glad you could be here. Do you mind starting just by sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, as your listeners know, my name is Jessica Hutchison, and I'm currently a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Social Work at, at Wilfrid Laurier University. And my research focuses on the use of strip searching in women's prisons, which we'll get to uh, throughout the conversation today. And I come into my PhD uh, heavily informed through my experience as an advocate for women in prison and criminalized women for over the past 13 years. So I've spent literally hundreds and hundreds of hours inside women's prisons mostly Grand Valley Institution for Women here in Kitchener, which is the largest federal prison for women in Canada. And I've spent numerous hours inside uh, GVI, Grand Valley Institution, trying to help women um, fight um, fight against sort of the state violence that they are experiencing that mimics the violence that they have experienced on the outside. And the majority of women who I do help uh, support and advocate for and with are Indigenous because Indigenous women are significantly overrepresented in the prison system. Right now, 42% of women in prison are Indigenous, and they only account for 4% of the general population in Canada. 
So it's a, it's a significant problem. It's another form of colonial violence. And with that, I would also like to um, introduce myself in terms of my relationship to the land that I'm on. So I am a white settler with European descent from Italy, Ireland, and England. My family came over here a long time ago and I'm currently residing and working and researching on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples. So a lot of my decolonizing work is trying to figure out and determine what my, uh, my responsibilities as a white person are to dismantling colonial violence against Indigenous women and girls. So this is part of the work that I do, is working with criminalized women to try to reduce the harms, violence, and even death of Indigenous women and girls at the hands of the state. Thank you. Yeah, I think there's so much we, I know, speaking for myself anyways, that I need to learn. We all need to continue learning and, and doing. So I, I appreciate you speaking about that today. And, and 13 years you've been doing this work, that's, that's amazing. I'm really excited to learn from you. So today we're going to be talking about women in prison, domestic violence, and misogyny. And I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about your research regarding women in prison. I'm wondering what some of the most common reasons are that women who have experienced domestic violence may end up in prison. Yeah, so um, I'll talk about my research and my experience sort of witnessing state violence against women and advocating with and for women. So it's a combination of sort of my lived experience working with criminalized women and my research. So what I can tell you very confidently is that the majority of women in prison um, who have experiences of violence in their past, which is a significant portion. So we know that, um, and these stats are probably pretty low, we know that uh, around 70% of all women in prison have experienced some form of uh, interpersonal violence, whether that be childhood abuse, um, abuse in their domestic partnerships, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, etc. And that number even is even higher for Indigenous women, which it's, it's nearing sort of like the 100% of Indigenous women have experience with uh, various types of violence against them in the community, in their homes, in their family homes, etc. And they're predominantly incarcerated because we criminalize their survival strategies against the violence that they're experiencing. So when women resist the violence that they're experiencing, whether that's through uh, leaving home at a young age because they are experiencing violence, they end up on the street and having to survive. So they do what they need to survive, um, whether that be sex work or engaging in other types of behaviors such as uh, selling drugs, and then that becomes criminalized. And Indigenous and Black women are hyper-criminalized because they are over-surveilled by the state as it is. So they're over-surveilled by police and therefore they end up in the criminal justice, going through the criminal justice system um, for, uh, for engaging in survival 
behaviors. And another way that women end up in, in prison who are experiencing domestic violence and interpersonal and community violence is by retaliating and resisting that violence and sometimes ending up killing the person who has been engaging in uh, violence against them. So there's um, an example right now, Helen Nasland out west has been sentenced to 18 years in prison for killing her uh, abusive husband and she was um, abused for, you know, um, a long, long, long period of time and now her resistance strategy is being criminalized and she has been given the extremely harsh se sentence of 18 years in prison. So. I would say that the majority of women, the reasons why women end up in prison is because of things like poverty, trauma, having to engage in behaviors in order to survive not only the interpersonal violence that they have experienced, but also the structural violence that they experience. Things like um, white supremacy, racism, sexism and misogyny at the structural levels. So one thing to always keep in mind is uh, for us to keep in mind is that interpersonal violence cannot be separated from the structural violence that people, uh, women experience on the regular on a regular basis. And these things are intricately connected. So um, this is why women end up being criminalized and being sent to prison because of their responses, which are one thing that I do like to say is that oftentimes women's uh, responses to violence, they're, they're normal responses to abnormal circumstances. So we talk about how, you know, if you're in an abnormal circumstance, if you're, if you're being abused, if you're being violently hurt, on a regular basis, then of course these reactions, these behaviors that women and girls resist with are normal behaviors because these are very dangerous and abnormal situations. So I know that's a very long-winded uh, answer to the question, but essentially women's survival mechanisms are criminalized and then they end up in prison. No, thank you. I appreciate you elaborating on that because I think it is sometimes really difficult to understand the coping mechanisms that people have. You know, when you've experienced such severe trauma, the coping mechanism may look different than someone else's coping, coping mechanism for something else that they've gone through. So I think, you know, we can't always assume we know someone's experience and I'm, I'm glad you elaborated on that because I think it's, it's really important to kind of think about those things that, that don't always come to mind right away. Yeah, and I think that I think that if we um, also take into consideration, if we're thinking about Indigenous women, we always have to remember the impacts of colonial violence on Indigenous women. And if we think back to residential schools, this is um, right now at the time of recording at the forefront of our minds right now because we have just right now almost 400 Indigenous children have been found at a variety of different residential schools found buried. So residential schools are, are in the common understanding right now, which is good because as my one of my mentors and committee members, Dr. Kathy Absalon, she's an Anishinaabe scholar, 
and she's been really helping me to decolonize the way that I think and the way that I know. And she has encouraged all of us white people to wake up from our colonial coma. So we all need to start waking up from this coma that we have been in our, literally our entire lives because we live in a white supremacist and colonial society we have to start really fighting against it. And one of the things that we need to start recognizing is that Indigenous peoples have been, we have inflicted violence on Indigenous peoples as a country and continue to do that through different mechanisms like child welfare, like the prison system, like um, the reservation system, which has um, it's significantly impoverished. These are all decisions by the Canadian state. And we have this tendency to blame individuals for their circumstances when we don't take into consideration the structural conditions that have put them there. So they don't really have a choice. Their choices are very limited when um, you only have, uh, if you have to choose between turning your lights on or feeding your family, there are many diff difficult choices to make. So we always have to take into consideration how we as a society have created the conditions that um, force women to make some very, very difficult decisions in their life. Yep, I understand that. So I know you've interviewed several different women for research projects that you've worked on within the prison system, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, this procedure and if any of these women that you spoke with happened to be survivors of domestic violence or, or what their situation was. Yeah, no problem. So I have, my re as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, my research is focused on the use of strip searching in women's prisons. So I will briefly describe what strip searching is uh, from a high level. I won't get into too much detail about it, but I would just like your listeners to know that this, this uh, practice goes on every single day in prisons, jails, and police stations all across Canada. So strip searching is the forced removal of all of your clothing and the performance of actions with sexual parts of your body so that the guards can see your all parts of your body. So you have to bend over, you have to squat, you have to spread your butt cheeks. And I know that this sounds um, very, uh, people might have a hard time hearing this. And I would like us all to think about what it would be like to go through this. Uh, so if it's hard for us to hear it, imagine what it's like to go through it and two guards watch women while they're doing this. So two agents of the state are watching women while they are naked, completely naked, bending over, etc. And the reason I'm talking about this as it relates to your question is because we know that the, the vast majority of women in prison are survivors of um, domestic violence, of sexual violence, community violence, tons of interpersonal violence. And when they come to prison, they are then met with the same kind of violence, this time by the state. So women who have experienced sexual violence and are survivors of sexual violence have told me specifically that when they are being strip searched, 
they are triggered to remember back to when they were either uh, sexually abused as a child or sexually abused as an adult. And it happens to them, like literally strip searching, all of the women that I have spoken to for my research have said that they've been strip searched hundreds of times easily. So imagine having to be um, forced to go through these motions that are to you, um, you know, triggering to memories, thinking back to being sexually assaulted in the past. And at the end of the day, women tell me that they experience being strip searched as sexual assault. Because if we really think about it, if these actions were performed outside of prison or police power, it would be considered sexual assault. Forcing somebody to remove their clothes and having them perform actions with sexual parts of their body would be considered sexual assault. But it's not because it's not considered that in this, con in this um, context because it is literally written into our laws that the state is allowed to do that. So I would like to, one of the things I'm encouraging myself and community to think about is how language shapes our reality. So when we hear the word strip searching, for example, we don't really give much thought to it. But when we um, think about what the actions actually are, it's actually sexual assault. So imagine if we just called it sexual assault. Our understanding of it would be much different, and I am very optimistic and hopeful that the community would not be okay with us doing this to women and men for that matter. Men are strip searched as well. Um, and trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming um, people in prison are forced to remove their clothing on a daily basis. And um, everybody I speak to says that it's just another form of abuse that they've had to endure. And it's just this continuum of captivity and violence and harm that they have experienced for their entire lives. That is difficult to hear. And I can imagine it would be difficult to work on this kind of research this kind of thing as well so um, I do appreciate you sharing it with us and you've been working on this kind of thing for a long time now so I'm sure it is hard sometimes um, and I just want you to know I do appreciate you sharing it even though it's difficult. Is there any stories of anyone in particular without giving away too many details of course that stands out in your mind of someone who you've spoken to who've, uh, who has experienced domestic violence? Yeah, so the women who I've interviewed have given me permission to use their stories um, to help raise public awareness around the violence of the prison system. And um, one person, one woman in particular, I won't use her name, but one, one woman in particular shared with me that she had experienced sexual abuse as a child all throughout her childhood, and then she married a man and it was a very, very abusive relationship. Sexually abusive, emotionally abusive, physically abusive, etc. And then she ended up being criminalized for fighting back against this violence that she had experienced uh, against, uh, from him. So she ended up in prison and she just kept saying how the ex her experiences in prison mimic the experiences that she's had 
from her her ex-husband, from her childhood experiences, etc. And what that says to me is that the way that we are responding to women who are experiencing domestic violence is we're responding to women who've experienced domestic violence with more domestic violence. Only we don't call it domestic violence. So one thing um, that I've really been thinking about and researching is, I'm sure your listeners are familiar uh, with the power and control wheel of how intimate partner violence or domestic violence actually shows up. And I'm just going to use a couple of examples around how in an intimate partner um, violence situation, how that shows up in a prison system. And they're the exact same mechanisms of power and control. We just don't necessarily see it as that um, because it's the prison system. So we're, we, we don't, we're not conditioned to, to think about it in these ways. So for example, in you know, domestic violence situations, oftentimes children are used against women in variety of ways. Um, you know, makes them feel guilty about their about their uh, parenting. Sometimes keeps them away, keeps their children away from them. Uh, uses them to try to say, well, if you do this, then you'll be able to see your children. Well, the prison does the exact same thing. The prison uses women's children against them and says, well, if you complete this program then you can go see your children. And in my case, in my research, if you agree to be strip searched, then you can go see your children. So women have to make the choice of either getting to see their own children, but then they have to be strip searched. So they have to say, I'm going to um, sacrifice my bodily integrity in order to see my children. This is the I call it a Sophie's choice because it's not a choice. These are impossible decisions that women have to make and women have constantly told me, told me that they have made uh, declined visits with their own children and their family because they don't want to be strip searched anymore. They don't want to be, in their words, sexually assaulted in order to see their children. So domestic violence st uh, tactics and strategies are the same ones that are used by the prison system, so using children against them. Um, the amount of uh, minimizing, denying, and blaming, so things like gaslighting that happens in a domestic violence situation is rampant in the prison context. So women are constantly their grievances are constantly minimized. They are constantly told that what they are experiencing is either for their own good or it's their own fault or they're making it up. So, for example, when women in prison go to get some medical help by the nurses and doctors there, they're often told that they're lying and that they're making up their symptoms. So constantly being told that they're lying, that they're overreacting, those are some of the same tactics and strategies that are used in domestic violence situations. And I think the last, the last example that I'll use in this case is how isolation is often used as a tactic in domestic violence. So uh, women are isolated from their friends and family and loved ones. Their um, partner controls where they go, who they see, uh, what money they can, they can spend limits the time, uh, sorry, limits their uh, work and activities, surveils them, 
this exact same thing happens in the prison system. So women are controlled in terms of who they can see, when they can see them, how long they can see them for. They're surveilled while, they're, while they are um, engaging in these conversations, either through um, cameras or guards literally uh, standing beside them. They're also put in solitary confinement um, and literally isolated from all of humanity. I've supported many, many women in prison who are isolated from even having any human contact. Even my own, I have to talk through the, the meal slot to them because they're not allowed to have human contact. So this is abusive, this is violence, and our society needs, our, like as a community, we need to really start thinking about how prison perpetuates and um, mimics the exact same violence that women are trying to escape from. How do we expect uh, women who are trying to um, get out of domestic violence situations, they do their best, they try to engage in different, uh, different ways of surviving, but then we criminalize them and then we put them in a prison that does the exact same violent behavior um, that their partners were doing to them. So it's just this continuum of captivity and violence, as I have mentioned before, and that interpersonal violence is so connected to state violence. And I would like us to start thinking about and talking more about state violence uh, through prisons and policing, children's aid, all of these mechanisms of power and control. Um, but we often don't see it because it's really hard to see, especially in a prison context, because we're not allowed to see it as the general public. And speaking about not being able to see things, you made me think when you were talking there about um, women sometimes being blamed, uh, we think they are lying or making things up, not telling the truth or forgetting things. I was talking to someone for another podcast episode about traumatic brain injury, and I learned that one in four Canadian women has experienced traumatic brain injury as a result of domestic violence which to me was staggering. And also traumatic brain injury can cause people's brains to be disorganized and to forget things and things like this. So I'm wondering if that sometimes contributes to this, this confusion that's happening there as well. And, you know, maybe we just need to work on, um, you know, learning more and seeing, seeing what those reasons are behind these behaviors that sometimes come up. And maybe it's not that someone's lying. It's that they, they really honestly can't remember because they have a traumatic brain injury. Um, so I would imagine that sometimes anyways, that's the case as well. Absolutely. And I think you're bringing up a good point around how um, there are so many women in prison with disabilities, whether that be a traumatic brain injury. I know that there's some really good research going on in terms of how many women in prison have experienced a traumatic brain injury as a result of domestic violence. I don't have those stats in front of me, but that's a really important point for us to remember that we are incarcerating women, um, women, trans individuals who have been subjected to horrific amounts of violence. And sometimes that results in a traumatic brain injury. And we're also incarcerating women who have significant mental health issues. And we know that mental health, uh, or sorry, we know that prisons are no place for people who have uh, serious mental health issues. And one of the um, strategies that the prison uses when a, a woman is, ex is exhibiting signs of mental illness, such as uh, suicide attempts, they literally 
put them into segregation, into a segregation cell. And a segregation cell is exactly what you imagine. It's a six by eight cement cell. Only the mental health uh, cell, as they call it, mental health monitoring, has a glass door and the lights are kept on so the woman can be uh, monitored 24 hours a day. So imagine just trying to end your life and then being put in an isolation cell and being told that it's for your own good. Even though the woman is saying, I don't want to be here. I want human contact. I want to be out in the community. I need support. We do the exact opposite. We isolate them. Um, we don't allow them to have human contact. And this just further exacerbates the mental health issues that they're having. So all of this to say is that prisons are an extremely violent place, from especially for women who have experienced violence throughout their lives, which is almost everyone in prison. So there are alternatives that we need to start really, really considering, including the decarceration of women, which means literally, first of all, not putting women into prison, but the women who are in prison, we need to start um, taking them out of prison and providing them with the supports that they need in the community. So this uh, number always, um, really uh, shocks people is that the last number that I have in terms of how much it costs to incarcerate a woman in a federal prison is $220,000 per year per woman. So at GVI here in Kitchener, there are around 200 women. So if we multiply that by $220,000, that is a lot of money. And that's just one prison. Imagine how we could use that money in the community if we could use it for upstream initiatives like giving people a livable income, safe, affordable housing, culturally relevant supports, thinking about uh, indigenous communities that don't have, safe, uh, don't have drinking water. We spend all of our money downstream. We need to be in those reactive um, sectors. We need to be moving it upstream and spending this money so that people, uh, women, trans individuals are not um, subjected to these um, violent situations in the first place because they'll be able to support themselves because they'll have a livable income, safe childcare, uh, um, high quality childcare, safe affordable housing. It, it reduces the the chances of them ending up in violent relationships. So these are the choices that we make as a society where, you know, where we put our money shows where we value or what we, or who we value and what we value. And right now we are way, you know, if the scale was, the scale is way tipped, tipped towards um, downstream reactive punishment mentality. And that's another thing that I've really been thinking about lately is how we as individuals, every single person in our society engages in what I call carceral thinking. So what that means is that we all um, think the way, in, we think in ways that um, imprisonment operates. So things like surveillance, control, punishment, and this is becoming, for me, even uh, very clear for me as an individual through the pandemic. I'm often surveilling people and looking at them, make sure they're wearing their mask. And then if they're not, I say to myself, that person should be punished. 
well, that's a carceral mentality and I need to rid myself of that. So we have work to do as individuals to rid ourselves of these punishing mentalities, these punishment mentalities, because we want to live in a world that is more um, compassionate and caring rather than just one rooted in hatred and punishment and othering. We like to other people. We like to think that they are, you know, they out there are, are bad and we are good, but that's just not reality. Um, we, have, we have created the conditions that allow for this. And so what we need to do, you know, from a very high level is we need to rid our society of white supremacy, racism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, all of these huge structures, and they seem really overwhelming and really intimidating, like how are we ever going to um, address those issues? Things like ableism. Ableism is so rampant in our, in our society. But what it does, it starts with us as individuals. So my, one of my PhD professors, Dr. Martha Kawai Kumsa, who is uh, from Ethiopia, she went, among the many things that she has taught me is that we always like to point the fingers outwards. We like to say uh, those systems and those structures need to change, those people need to change, but there are three fingers pointing back at us. And all of us, every single one of us have things inside of us, ways of thinking inside of us that are ableist, that are classist and transphobic. So we need to really dig deep inside of us to rid ourselves of this thinking. And then we need to create systems and structures that are free um, from these uh, multiple types of structural violence, because only then will we be able to start reducing interpersonal violence. Thank you for expanding on that. Something I always ask at the end of these episodes is, you know, what can we all do to be a good neighbor? What is something that we can do? What role can we play? And and you went there and I really appreciate it because I think there's, it's by the sounds of it, a lot that we can do on a very personal individual level to be better neighbors to all those around us. And I think this is a, a really good starting point for us. I know there's probably such a long way to go and it feels daunting sometimes but I think even just getting little tidbits sometimes and you know your example about COVID really stuck with me because you know I find myself doing that too and then I I don't like when I do it but you think oh you shouldn't be doing that and it's it's a it's a weird time we're all living through right now but I think that's a good example of how something that we're all feeling and something we could all work on as well so I really appreciate you explaining that and before we go, I'm, I'm also wondering if you could just explain why this conversation is important to you. I know you've been doing this work for so many years now, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, it's, people ask me that question all the time, and I don't necessarily have like the most you know, articulate answer in the world other than women in prison have been um, villainized through our society you know when we think about men in prison they aren't nearly as demonized and hated as women in prison and particularly if we think about you know from an intersectional perspective thinking about indigenous women in prison or black women in prison they're even uh, more stigmatized and even more othered and dehumanized to be quite honest so i just i'm it's in my bones, it's in my soul 
that I want to help change people's perspectives around incarceration to begin with. I am a prison abolitionist, which means I do believe in a world without prisons. What that doesn't mean is that we're just going to tear down prisons and just leave society the way that it is. What it, what it requires is a complete transformation of our society. And I'm passionate about creating a society that does not rely on punishment, power, and control. And the prison system, and particularly in women's prisons, we see this manifesting. Uh, once you've seen, uh, once obviously once you've experienced incarceration, you know this, but I have not experienced incarceration, but I have bore direct witness to the violence of incarceration. And if many people in the community saw this as well and experienced it as well, they would recognize that this does not create a safe, healthy community. This is the exact opposite. Prisons do not create safety. They do the opposite. They further harm people. They further, and we know that hurt people hurt people. So why would we continue to hurt people who are already hurt and thinking that in some weird way that they're not gonna be hurt anymore? We're just adding layer and layer and layer of, of harm and violence and trauma onto people. And I just uh, have, have come to the conclusion a long time ago that this is not the way, this is not the this type of society I want to live in. So I'm just trying uh, my best to try to dismantle these oppressive systems, both like through the prison system, but also the, the oppressive systems inside of ourselves as well that, um, that continue to dominate and cause harm to other people. So I'm trying to use my, my privileged position as a white uh, cisgender woman. I have many privileges, so I'm trying to use my, my voice in a multiple, dif multiple different ways and taking action in multiple different ways to try to uh, reduce the harms and violence uh, that people are experiencing at the hands of the state. Thank you so much for being here today, Jessica. It's been really great to learn from you and I could listen to you all day. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me and I could talk all day. So it's probably a good thing this is, <laughs> this is only a 30 minute episode. Thank you so much. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.